Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Meaningful Learning Podcast with me, Dr. Samantha Cotrera. Many of you know that I started this podcast as a way to share my academic conference presentations with a wider audience. I also have a video series called Imagining a New We that's designed for K-12 teachers and helping them think about their practice and pedagogy in more meaningful, inclusive, and transformative ways. Just after the WHO declared COVID-19 a pandemic, I recorded a video for that series asking how we would teach history after this. I didn't have any answers. I still don't. But in asking the question, I was able to connect to a wide variety of people in the history and heritage field about whether their ideas of history have changed because of this moment, how they think teaching history will shift after this moment, and how notions of community, collaboration, and creativity, the imagining a new we that I named the video series after, may be developed or curtailed during and after this time. All of these videos are available on YouTube. You can search for my name to find the channel. But the conversations have been so rich that I wanted to provide another way for people to access them. This podcast episode and the rest in the Pandemic Pedagogy series is an unedited audio version of one of those video conversations. As an unedited version, you may hear buffering or a prompt to re-ask a question or even the inclusion of a cat. But the content and quality of the conversation remains the same. In this video, originally posted on April 16th, I talked to Aaron Stout. Aaron Stout is a former high school history teacher and a current program coordinator and instructor at the University of Lethbridge. He and I talk about whether a focus on procedure prevents us from breathing with the lives and experiences from the past. Hi, Aaron. Thank you so much for taking the time. I know that you are busy. Um, uh, teaching, being a coordinator at the university, um, being a parent right now. So thank you for taking the time. Thank you very much. It's, uh, it's nice to, to have something different to do with the day. And uh, it's good to see you there in Ontario. Yeah, thank you. It's nice to see you in Alberta. How's the weather? Um, not great. <laughs> We've got more snow. It's going to be 14 degrees tomorrow. And then it's going to be snow and minus four or five on the weekend. So, you know, you know, spring would yeah, be good. Yeah. <laughs> we've, had, we've had a very kind of nice sunny spring and I keep talking about that in the videos and people are like, um, just so you know, it's snowing here. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I'm glad that, uh, I'm glad that we have this opportunity to talk because other people are also saying that, you know, we're so busy now trying to um, like adjust to this new normal, especially when our work interacts with other people, that we aren't having chances to kind of think through these big ideas in these thoughtful ways. So um, I hope this conversation can be part of that. And that's why I always start with this big question about history. Will we think about history, like the actual subject, the actual discipline of history, different after this moment? What do you think? I, I think I think this moment helps us pause, and I think that's that's amazing when we look at the context that we're in. Um, I think that the rethinking about history and history education, by extension, um, has been something that we've really been doing over the last ten years, trying okay. to understand and trying to structure, and trying to revisit, and so. Um, I'm hoping that this pause helps us rethink and restructure and reprioritize um, what history education is and what history education can actually do. And, 
And my hope is that is that we can not only look back, but look ahead and start mm-hmm. thinking about how, how does history education take a different structure when we're meeting face-to-face with our students again, uh, yeah. when we're seeing them, when we're able to see the light turn on or when we're able to see them struggle. Um, I, think, I think that's a wonder, but what we present to them as history, I think is inherently um, connected with the awe and wonder that history can, uh, can present our students uh, in the field, in classrooms, and in our university classrooms as well. Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting because the conversation I had with Andrea Eidinger, for example, who we were talking about, do you think history is going to change after this or history teaching? And she spoke from her perspective as being a history professor. And she, uh, she said, I have hopes. And her answer reflected the longer conversation that she has seen and has been a part of in the field of history. And so when you say history is already changing, it's been changing over the last 10 years, it really makes me think of all these conversations we're having about these moments of crisis help reveal structures. And people may or may not have seen a lot of these changes in the field of history or the field of history education. But now we can see, oh yeah, this this conversation feels different because of this moment. So thanks for like historicizing the conversation because other people have done it, but I think you said it in a really like clear, distinct way. So thanks. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Um, See, it's nice to be like the glue that holds all the conversations together because I can be like, oh, look at what, look at what you did there. You didn't even see that. So then to me, this, this brings up a question of, are we going to teach history differently after this? And I, I think of the, um, I think of the video that I did with Dr. Nathan Smith, and he said, I don't think it will change, but like the mode will change. I think teaching, there'll be more online courses, but then to me, history will have to shift and change if the mode is changing too. Do you think the teaching of history is going to change after this? I don't know. <laughs> um, Here. And, and let me frame that by, by just going back. We, we've got a model of history education that really is content centric, right? Yeah. And so when we look at that, you know, it comes from um, really this positive, positivistic stance where we can know history and we transmit the story and content really becomes the anchor. Um, and that professionalization of history that we see in the early 1900s um, and is kind of extended all the way on is still a prominent understanding of history that we see in curriculum and especially Mm. in K-12 programs. Um, That content doesn't seem to be open for debate. Um, And when you talk to teachers, so the Alberta Teachers Association actually surveyed our social studies teachers um, in 2016 and a lot of them still looked at the content aspects um, of the program of studies as being really important. They saw it as a struggle, but they see it as being really important. And so this content delivery model of history education, I think is deeply ingrained in our education mm-hmm. system as we, as we have them. Now, in the discipline of history, we see that sense of content being 
rethought. And we see this in gender historians, we see this in postmodern historians, we see this in post-colonial historians where we're starting to bust apart um, some of those grand narratives. But if you take a look at um, K-12 curriculum, it's still really ingrained this content delivery. This is the content that we need to know. Um, and and I, don't, I don't think that content isn't important, but it's a pillar or it's conceptualization of history education that still exists. Mm -hmm. So will this moment change that conceptualization? It will if we offer a different, a different framework for people to think of. Yeah, I mean, I, I really like that framing because um, I also think that content, as, as much as people want to, I have, sorry, I have a cat here, um, as much as, we, as people in the field want to talk about skills, I think that, that teachers still gravitate towards content. And while I, I hear you framing it in a way that's kind of negative, I've always felt that if we recognize that and acknowledge that, it gives us greater um, opportunity to bring in content that can then challenge us. And mm -hmm. so I see, so I see this and I would love your response to it. I see this as an opportunity to be open to more content that can be transformative, that can help mirror the questions about family and care work and isolation and public mm -hmm. health and inequity that this moment is showing. Do you have thoughts about yeah. that? Well, I think content is significant. I, I think my previous comments really deal with this idea of content as uncritically transmitted. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's a problematic feature in our in our in our approach to yeah. content. Yeah. Um, I think the procedural approach that we see within, and especially in Ontario, you've got historical thinking concepts that are built into your curriculum. I think the procedural aspects try to break apart that content to look at what you're talking about in the sense of what voices were missed or why was this voice really trumpeted above other voices, right? I, I think understanding the structure of history and the procedural concepts to build history give us the ability to highlight these, these aspects or these stories or these, um, these considerations that maybe were missed. Mm -hmm. um, my fear that's echoed by a number of of social studies teachers, at least here in Alberta, is the idea that when we get content dense programs um, within the K to 12, you know, teaching life, it becomes very difficult to reveal to our students the nature of what history is mm. and what history is not. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's where you get to the stories that you're talking about is this idea of history. Um, as a construct, history as a narrative, history as a story that has been put together for purposes. And it's really important to understand those purposes yeah. to understand that history. And so um, I agree. I think there's wonderful content that we have, um, but I think there's work to be done um, by curriculum framers and curriculum writers to give teachers the opportunity to follow these big questions. And I think we create opportunities in a K to 12 system within that, within that framework. 
Yeah, that's really great. And I just want to flag that you were smiling because a cat, like literally across yeah. the yeah. screen. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's really great and really uh, a thoughtful way to think about something that I think we all balance because, you know, research shows that teachers will teach with a purpose in their history classes that they defined before becoming a history teacher. Mm -hmm. And that purpose and that, that way of thinking about history is often based on what they learned. And if they learned this content rich transmission um, framework, then they may revert even without realizing it to that. So I appreciate you bringing up some of these things for, for everyone, like everyone to think about, about how can we ensure that we aren't just transmitting these things that we are identifying as the most important facts and instead thinking about construction. And I appreciate that you brought in postmodern historians because um, I, I do a lot of postmodern work and I didn't, it was never intended for this video series to like focus on that, but it's been amazing how it has come up, things about revealing structures in so many videos. So um, anyway, I just wanted to like, I just wanted to shout out that, that link because it has been coming up a lot and I don't necessarily think that a lot of these postmodern ideas get enough due in these conversations because they can seem really inaccessible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Sorry, I was going to go on and I was like, I don't have a thought there. <laughs> It's, okay, it's, right. it's, uh, it's, it's funny doing these because like it seems like a natural point of a conversation but then that yeah. was just like a weighty rhetorical statement so. no and and i think i think you're hitting on something here in the sense that um i think there's been a lot of work done um that tries to understand what what narrative is Mm -hmm. um, what perspective is, what a historical voice is. Um, and I think in some ways that's really important work. And, and now I'm going to balance that with another comment. Um, I think that's really important work. But my fear in that work is we prioritize those procedural considerations and we miss the, the voice of the individual behind the source or behind the story, or behind the perspective. I think it's easy for us to get into an analysis of what a primary source is and what it does and miss what it says uh, or miss what it reveals about humanity. And mm -hmm. I, think that, I think that balance is a tough balance that we tread um, because on one hand, content by itself is a grand narrative that's not critically approached. Procedurals, but uh, procedural approaches, whether that's through evidence, whether that's through you know judgments about continuity and change, or even the construction of a narrative that that prioritizes a certain perspective, um, again aggregates data to be able to create um, something that that resembles a coherent kind of idea. But at the core of all of that are people's lives and experiences. And if we miss that it's people's lives and experience, then we miss the depth of what history is. And I think that as educators, we need to come back to the idea that history is about people's lives and experiences. Mm. We need to find ways to make selections, both of content and procedural concepts that help us unearth 
these stories, help us understand these people, help us appreciate the lives that they lived and the decisions that they made. I think that becomes a really powerful um, position for what history education can be. Yeah, I I uh, agree with you. I think that those, that's a really thoughtful way to put it because um, a lot of people that have watched these videos know that it takes some issues with historical thinking. And I, for me, it's because it, it does mimic uh, a procedural approach in ways that doesn't allow for things like affect, um, doesn't allow for emotion, doesn't allow for that humanity. Um, and so I think that thinking about it as this procedural approach does help us remember, it's not like this notion of thinking historically, uh, it's this notion of having things in this, in a procedure in a way that can divorce us from that humanity, like you said. Mm -hmm. I, I think it becomes our goals, right? Yeah. So instructionally, we talk about what is my purpose instructionally with these students. I think we need, really need to sit down and think about what is the purpose of history education. Mm. We can see that within, um, you know, the big six historical thinking concepts that these procedures, that these historical thinking concepts help us frame um, how researchers might take documents and make judgments about them. And those judgments ultimately become the narratives that we, that we look at. Yeah. Um, not sacrosanct in and of themselves, they're judgments that people have made to make the best sense that they can out of the source evidence that they have. Mm -hmm. um, there's nothing wrong with that. But if my purpose is, well, I want my students to understand what evidence is, which has value, then that becomes the focus pedagogically. Right. If our focus becomes, let's take a look at this letter and just listen to what this letter says. Mm -hmm. um, I think that becomes a powerful moment. Uh, I did a workshop not too long ago with, with a number of teachers and we looked at just a letter from, uh, from the front lines in World War I. Uh, and it was a letter from an individual, his name was Harry Morris. Um, and in the letter, it talks about his experience in the trench and getting injured in the trench. Mm. And he talks about them sitting and they're in kind of a, a dugout that they've created in the side of the trench, him and his buddies, they're having lunch. He talks about what they're eating. And then they talk about how this shelling starts. And he reflects on this experience of going, wow, it's gonna be a busy night. And it hits just right beside their hole. And so they all get out and they're like, ah, well, let's just finish the last bite of this before we go. And I'm sitting down and go, okay. <laughs> and then they get into this big firefight and another shell goes off and it goes through his leg. And he's sitting reflecting on this experience in his hospital bed, talking about how fast shrapnel flies. Mm. And, and it was a great experience for that. The story was a great experience, not only to say what were the trenches like, but how is this individual internalizing this experience? Yeah. How is he telling it back? Why is he telling it back? What is the, what is, what would it be like to be there in the trench with him, you know, at that period and at that time? There's, there's so much richness that we can find in that source that spurs the imagination. And by selecting something like that, you can engage your students in, okay, we know that the trenches are bad. 
but what would it be like? What would it sound like? What would it feel like? What would be, what is this individual saying about that experience that, that gives us a window into who they are and into yeah. how they perceive? I think that can be a really powerful moment for our students. I think it can be a powerful moment for us as individuals to sit, to imagine, um, to breathe uh, yeah. Yeah. years ago. And, uh, and I think there's, I think there's merit to that. And then we can sit down and we can talk about, well, he was in his hospital bed. How fresh would these memories be? You know, we can talk about contextuality. We can talk about the nature of the letter being sent back home and that he probably had an intention for this letter to be shared around with the peer group, right? How does that change, right? We can talk about those things, that's okay. But first, yeah. can, we, can we breathe with him? Yes. You know? I, I love that so much because, because yes, we can have those conversations, but like, let's also just take a minute or a few to just internalize it and to think about it in ways that aren't going to be assessed and evaluated, but mm -hmm. to allow us to recognize the humanity of people in the past, just so that we can also recognize and value our humanity in the future or, and in the present. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no, continue. Um, what I was thinking about is so often um, we've seen history in um, curriculum documents and, and we can say it history, we can also lump in social studies and I know that's a little bit of a hybridization and I, I'm tense I about that. that. That's, that's, another, that's, another, <laughs> that's another conversation, but um, when we look at it from its earliest inclusions in public education, it has been seen as a pathway towards citizenship. Mm. Um, but that pathway towards citizenship has somewhat been clouded in the sense that early on that pathway is seen as very much uh, a pathway that was um, directed here is what it means to be a British citizen in a British empire. And we're going to own that. And all of you immigrant populations coming to Canada are going to learn what it is to be um, Christian, uh, what it's going to be, you know, learn what it is to be a British citizen, learn how to relate to that. Um, that has since changed. You know, we've seen a change in that in some ways, though the, the, the grand narrative is still present in some ways. Mm -hmm. We've seen shift and we've seen that change and we've seen a greater movement towards inclusion within our school systems and that. Um, history opens the window for us to really start to see citizenship through the I idea of uh, humanizing content trying to understand perspective, um, trying to appreciate the perspectives of the past in a real and meaningful and in a deep way. And it's these skills that help us understand the perspectives of the past that actually foster in us a desire to understand the perspectives in our present. Mm -hmm. um, and I think those, those attitudes of being open-minded, fair-minded, full-minded, um, if we can apply those into a historical context, those become aptitudes and attitudes that we bring into our modern context, especially when we consider the global nature of our world, especially when we consider um, the multicultural and, and pluralistic sense of our society. These skills are 
essential and we foster them in the history classroom. Yeah, that's so wonderful. Thank you so much. And I think it leads to our last question about imagining a new we. But before I ask that question, I just wanted to show you the irony of you talking about purpose right now. So before the pandemic happened, I mapped out all these videos I wanted to do for the spring and summer. And like this week literally was on purpose. <laughs> I've already recorded and edited um, two videos on teachers thinking about their purpose. And so I think what I'll do is I will package them up and I will post them for next week because I do think, especially in moving remote, you know, so part of what I do is I work in higher education settings and things like learning objectives and learning outcomes and um, uh, curriculum, the way we understand it in K-12 is not as, ubiquitous a concept as we are familiar with. And so one of the main things about moving online, I keep telling people is you need to be even more clear about what you want students to learn, not just what you're gonna teach. And I think that when you clarify your own purpose of running a course, it helps with that. So thank you for bringing that up. I, I think that's a really useful way when teachers right now are trying to figure out how to negotiate this new identity that they have in, in being a remote teaching teacher can, it, it will help to help them think about why are they doing this? What, what does history mean to them? Yeah, absolutely, I would agree. So that does lead to the last question, which is imagining a new we. So I often um, will see this divide whether or not people wanted it or not between like, us who, that know Canadian history and those that don't and whether that is uh, cultural or racial or like generational um, divides uh, that can that can be an implicit purpose that teachers come in with and I think that can be really problematic right so the idea about we need to imagine these greater circles of inclusion in our classrooms in the what we consider to be Canadian history um, has really been important to me and I have been interested in whether or not people think this notion of imagining or this notion of a we might shift and change because of this moment. Um, because for me, things like community and collaboration and even creativity, I've always imagined it in face-to-face -face spaces. And like maybe it will be online too, but it's predominantly face-to-face. -face. So hmm. do you have any thoughts about imagining a new we after this moment? Well, um... I think it, I think the idea of imagining a new we is, um, it, with your permission, I think I want to take it in a different slant in, please, in please. saying that, um, I think this, this idea of a we, uh, and a future we that is more inclusive, that is multicultural, that embraces diversity, um, directly happens within the context of our history classroom Ooh. because i think that the the ideas or the the antecedents that we look at are really in the way we approach and understand the past but approaching and understanding the past in a structured timeline becomes really empty and not meaningful so i i think our pathway to this new we of understanding complexity and citizenship and individuality um, is really something that that prioritizes the choices that we make as history educators. Mm. How do we how do we champion um, 
microhistory? How do we let um, diaries really speak from the past into our present? That gives a window into the expressions of, of other people. I think that becomes an essential component. So even more than conducting the structural components of our classrooms, it comes down to how do we engage in history that captures our imagination and our emotions, that then propels us into the critical thinking that we need to engage with, with any historical source. And I think, I think that's turning the pedagogical structure around a little bit from what many of us have experienced as far as history education. Um, so I've looked at doing that in a couple of different ways. And again, this is like, exper <laughs> I'm experimenting all the time and I'm not sure if it works. Um, but one of the ways is taking resources like autobiographies. So at the U of L, they actually um, champion the idea of every student reading the education of Augie Marasti. Mm. Um, and it was done through our Department of Liberal Education. Um, but it's a really powerful piece in that it's an autobiography that was written between an indigenous man that went through residential school system thinking about those experiences as he's older and working with David Carpenter, um, who is an English professor in order to kind of cobble this together. So really it's a, it's a work of two people working together to put together this memoir. Um, and it's really powerful when you read it. Um, it, it really shares a voice. Now, how much that voice has been moderated, you'd have to ask, You'd have to ask the two participants to really know that. Um, but the powerful piece in this book comes out at the end when David Carpenter is reflecting on his experiences in this relationship to create this product. And he talks about how we can look at differences or how we can create what, you know, what might be the norm and the other in society but he talks about how his experience really humanized his understanding of mm -hmm. just being a person and how overwhelmed he was by the welcome, by the compassion, and by the, uh, the generosity of these people that he was working with. Um, and I think we need to see history as an engagement that brings us to that insight, right? That we're not talking about an a group of people that we can other because they exist in the past or we can other because they share different um, gender, racial or ethnic perspectives. We need to choose pieces that help us see um, humanity in a clear way. And so when we talk about that practically, um, that might be engaging students in historical stories that are put into different formats. Yeah. Historical fiction can be really powerful because it entrenches the reader within the idea of human agency and intentionality. Um, we can use picture books. There's some really fantastic picture books that tell historical stories that really work for younger students, but bring up all of these key questions. Um, there was one that, uh, that came out about Viola Desmond yeah. that I read to my, my kids, and my kids were six at the time that I read it to them. And the story of Viola Desmond being a Black woman um, who goes to the theater and is asked to move because she's sitting in the wrong section, um, becomes a profound story of civil rights within Canada. And I think that's significant. 
But my kids looked at that and said, well, why did that happen to her? And why are they treating her differently? And why are there all these issues around um, different standards of behavior? And what did it mean to be a black woman at this time? My six-year-olds are coming up with questions like that. It just floored me that they were inherently interested in this story of injustice. And it opened up a wealth of questions out of that, that that required historical thinking concepts to be able to answer. But what enraptured them was this story of injustice, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. why it would be that way, and almost this sense of appreciation for who this person was. And so I think we need to blow off the doors um, as far as material that we challenge our students with. And I think we need to be broad and I think we need to seek diversity. And I think we need to see this, seek this disillusionment um, that especially white settler populations like my own, we, we don't need to be comfortable. Mm. We need to hear somebody's voice that makes us sit down and go, well, why would people treat people that way? And then give us the tools to be able to answer those questions. Give us the tools to be able to struggle with those realities. And to also say to our students uh, or our children, like, I don't have the answer. Let's look that up together, right? Yeah. To be yeah. able to say, like, yeah, these are questions we all have and not to have that fear of not knowing because the more we recognize what we don't know, the more we can learn from it, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think about the conversation I had with Dr. Christina Llewellyn about oral histories, and she said that I think that students can handle a lot more than we give them. And this is something I have found too, and I appreciate you saying this, and that's why I always say that students need connection, complexity, and care. Because yes, the connection element is very important, and that's often what what teachers will bring to their classrooms, which is great, but to acknowledge the complexities, the complexities of emotion, of structural inequity, of experiences, of the fact that not everyone in this classroom is gonna hear it the same way um, or understand it the same way because of their own lived experiences and their family's lived experiences, I think is so important. So, I mean, I don't think that that went off the question at all. I, I feel like that for me is exactly what I imagine when I'm saying imagining a new we, how can we allow for greater space in our classroom for these connections and complexities and the care for the other, um, even when and especially when we don't know what the other or how the other is going to think or react. And it's, it, it does come down to being okay with with a little bit of discomfort and sometimes a lot of discomfort. But if to go back to your other point, if you think of your own purpose um, of teaching history as just being the expert in the room, you don't have space for that. But if you allow space for your purpose to be able to have some of that complexity and that ambiguity, you can you can bring up a lot of that. So thank you so much for that that thoughtful answer. I hope that I hope that really shapes the way people might want to approach some of these ideas. And the books that you mentioned, um, just like any other references, are in the links below our video um, for people maybe to, to, to read those sources as well to be able to think about their own responses to them. So thank you for that.
Not at all. Can I add one thing just on the basis yeah, of, of you? Um, in Alberta, we've really um, had a mandate from about 2016 on where Indigenous education uh, has become part of the teacher quality standards that, that have been adopted. And at a faculty of education, we're working at incorporating that. One of the things that, that really has been profound in that work um, that we've been engaged with has been this question of reconciliation through relationship. Right. Um, and, and the importance of that relationship with the idea of conversation. Mm -hmm. And although it becomes hard to have a conversation with somebody in the past, when we choose sources that reflect that conversation, that reflect that, that level of engagement, that personal kind of connection, I think we get closer, as close as we you know, possibly can, mm -hmm. to understand the depth of feeling and to understand the importance the importance of the mandate to seek to understand this full mindedness that becomes really important. And so I just wanted to add that piece to it because I think it's more than knowing facts and dates. I think it's cultivating that characteristic that, that I want to know. I want mm -hmm. to know something I don't understand. I want to know people that aren't like me. And I think that can be a powerful thing that happens in our classrooms. And I'm open for that knowing to change me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. I, I glad, I'm glad that you brought up the um, element of reconciliation in our curriculum because I always start by talking about the fact that like the TRC was very clear that it's not teaching residential schools that is what re reconciliation means. Reconciliation is an ongoing relationship that we have to understand our own, our own epistemologies, our own colonial structures to be able to, to, to develop those relationships. And so thank you for bringing that up as, as this notion of relationality and this relationship and the fact that we need to be open to what this might look like. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Well, this was such a wonderful, <laughs> uh, this was such a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much, Erin. Um, I think that you brought a lot of perspectives that, uh, that did bring together a lot of different, different interviewees ideas, but in ways that are new and fresh. And this is such a, a great way to, to end the week. So thank you so much. Well, thank you very much for having me. And I look forward to seeing more of your work and more of your interviews as they come out. So thank you for doing this. Oh, of course, of course. All right, we'll see you later. <laughs> Bye. Bye now. Thank you for listening to the Pandemic Pedagogy series of the Meaningful Learning with Dr. Samantha Cotrera podcast. My first book, Transforming the Canadian History Classroom, Imagining a New We, will be available in the latter half of 2020. Order on Amazon or through your local bookseller today.